Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. If you're still deciding on your spring break getaway, Amtrak's got just the ticket. You can visit cities from D.C. and Philly to New York and Boston, all while enjoying more sustainable travel. Amtrak produces up to 83% less carbon emissions than traveling by car or plane. And did we mention the extra legroom and comfy seats? Book early and save at Amtrak.com. Click or tap the banner. Emissions comparisons vary depending on route and locomotive type. Restrictions may apply. Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in National Security. I'm Beth Windish, your host, and today we will be talking with Bob Meyer and Howard Kuhnruther about their new book, The Ostrich Paradox, Why We Underprepare for Disasters. Howard and Bob, welcome to the show. Good to be here. Morning. Howard, could you start off by telling us a little bit about yourself? I'm happy to do so. I'm a professor at the Wharton School, University of Pennsylvania. Uh, and I'm also co-director with Bob of the Wharton Risk Management and Decision Processing Center, which is in its 33rd year. And the focus of our center and, frankly, our, our research uh, and my research is to try to get a better understanding of how people make decisions, particularly with respect to low probability, high consequence events. That's what we've been interested in. And that's what you'll be hearing a bit about from our description of our book, The Ostrich Paradox. Uh, and I am trained as an economist, but I've tended to work with uh, psychologists and others to th- understand behavior. But we're also interested very much in, I'm interested in risk management and the challenges that we face in dealing with risk management. And so our center has been focusing on just exactly that issue. How do we get policies that can actually be implemented and focus on how decision making actually takes place? And so from that vantage point, um, we're just delighted to be with you in terms of discussing this book, which really represents a collaboration that Bob and I have had over the last four or five years to try to get a better understanding of what we need to know about the decision-making process in order to be able to develop strategies for dealing with them. And in the world we're living in today with terrorism and uh, natural disasters being a major part of Uh, What we hear in the media and what is affecting us all, we see this as a very important part of what we need to be doing in the future with respect to our own research and trying to make sure that we tie it in with actual people who can implement them. And Bob, could you tell us about yourself? 
Yeah, sure. Um, I'm a professor in the marketing department at um, uh, Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. And uh, and as Howard indicated, he and I together uh, co-direct the Center for Risk Management and Decision Processes. And my journey uh, towards this book and the background has been an unusual one. Uh, I grew up in uh, South Florida. We were pretty much every summer, uh, you're kind of on the lookout for hurricanes. I was a, a kid. We had a number of hurricane hits down in South Florida. And the one thing I wanted to be when I grew up because of that exposure was um, uh, was a hurricane forecaster. And my dad was in the insurance business and, and I saw the consequences of hurricanes uh, afterwards in terms of all the damage they would cause and the, 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 the toll of human recovery that was um, that came from it. Uh, but then when I went off into college and I went to grad school, I got more interested in uh, generally behavioral economics of the, the study of how people make decisions and often they make when making decisions. Uh, and then I, when I joined the Wharton School, I, I ran into Howard and, and I found out that he had a center that studied how people make decisions with respect to uh, hurricanes and other sorts of disasters. And it, it just seemed like a perfect marriage. So uh, that's a lot of my interest right now. Uh, I'm still interested in behavioral economics, and how people make decisions and mistakes, uh, but with a lot of the applications in the area of um, natural disasters, such as hurricanes, earthquakes, and human disasters. And how did this effort come about? Um, um, Howard and I ha- had been working, uh, you know, kind of independently and somewhat jointly for, for a number of years on trying to understand why is it when disasters happen, um, they, uh, the, the, the damage is so high. And, and, and it's sort of a puzzle because um, certainly if you look back in, in, in history, uh, uh, for example, if you go back when uh, Vesuvius erupted in uh, in Pompeii back, uh, you know, in uh, uh, thousand years ago. It's sort of understandable that there was a, a lot of deaths and destruction because no ability to forecast what would happen. Um, even at the turn of the century, uh, uh, eight thousand people died in a in a hurricane that hit Galveston, Texas. And and once again, as tragic as that was, once you kind of imagine how it would happen because we didn't have at that time any ability to forecast um, uh, hurricanes. We didn't have ability to the science wasn't there for forecasting and also um, uh, building codes didn't exist. We know how to design structures for uh, uh, resiliency. Uh, the same thing with the, the great San Francisco earthquake um, uh, at the turn of the last century where uh, it, it was a big earthquake and a fire that followed and they just not the it didn't occur to them to take protection, but they didn't know how. They didn't have the engineering capabilities. But what we're seeing today is what's a real puzzle is the fact that all that technology is all in place. We have great ability to forecast uh, where hurricanes are going. Uh, we have all the technology and engineering that you need to build earthquake-proof houses. We know how to protect against floods. Yet at the same time, disasters keep happening, and actually the cost of them is sort of escalating as time goes on. Uh, and, uh, and particularly, fortunately, within the United States, death tolls from these disasters have gone down quite a bit, but worldwide they haven't. Um, so, uh, so at that point, we, we sat down and said, this is an area that, that he and I had been studying, trying to figure out why it is that people don't use the information at their disposal to make better preparedness we thought it would be, be good for it to, to sit down and sort of, why don't we take all this knowledge that we've accumulated on why it happens and how we can use this knowledge to prevent uh, uh, or to do enhanced preparation in the future and put it all together in a book. And, and that's what gave rise to it. So I have to ask you about the title. What is the ostrich paradox? 
That's actually a really interesting and a great question. Um, when uh, both Howard and I, for over the years, when we've been giving lectures on this topic, uh, and people would ask the question, why is it that people don't prepare more? Uh, one of the, the sort of the stock answers that we would give is say, well, people put their heads in the sand, uh, drawing on the analogy of an ostrich. Uh, and of course, the classic story of what an ostrich does is when, uh, when, they, when they're in the plains of Africa and a lion is coming or whatever, uh, rather than sort of face the fear or deal with it, they just bury their heads in the sand and pretend it doesn't exist. Uh, but then, of course, uh, it, if you kind of do anything about ostriches, you know that that's completely false. Uh, ostriches don't do that. Uh, and in fact, uh, ostriches, if you, if you really want a great example of, um, of a species in nature that's immensely well-tuned and well has adapted risk adaptation, it's the ostrich. Um, here was this huge flightless bird uh, sitting in the plains of Africa, and they developed uh, all sorts of mechanisms to, uh, uh, in terms of, of which they've evolved over the years uh, to deal with risk. So, for example, they're one of the world's the, the fastest land animals. So, in fact, they can run away. Or alternatively, if they can't run away, they have an amazing ability to lie impeccably flat on the ground. So basically, they no longer become visible. And so it occurred to us that actually uh, the, the analogy to an ostrich actually is a pretty good one for humans, but in the complete opposite way of way people normally talk about it. In our case, we also have limitations. And for us, they're cognitive limitations. We have a difficulty in terms of thinking far into the future. Uh, we tend to be too optimistic. And so one of our books is that our book talks about how can we become more like ostriches by, by, by developing means of overcoming and adapting to our limitations, our own cognitive limitations to be more prepared. So that's sort of the paradox, uh, uh, that basically we ought to become more like ostriches, real world ostriches, not, like, not, not, uh, not try to be less like. Right. I would just I would just want to add to what Bob had to say. And we were both very surprised when we learned that from a colleague that ostriches did not uh, bury their heads in the sand, but they had their beaks in there to get food and that they were very smart. That when we ask that question to almost everyone and, and people like yourself, Beth, will ask, why do we title it that? Is almost everyone has said that ostriches bury their heads in the sand. And that and the word paradox, of course, is important. But as Bob indicated, we really wanted to have everyone pay attention with the title to the fact that there are these sets of biases that we have, we really have. It's going to be very hard to change them. And as a result of that, we're going to have to figure out how we work within the system. And that if we are going to get people to be like ostriches and prepare in advance, there are going to have to be some new strategies for risk management strategies for dealing with that. And we'll come back to that a little later on. You identify six cognitive biases in the book. The first two, myopia and amnesia, are somewhat related to time horizons. Howard, could you tell us about these? Uh, yes, I think this is one of the these these two biases, and particularly myopia, is one of the most important ones in the sense that we all tend to be very short run oriented. We think about how the benefits of actions that we take uh, over the next year or two, or even a shorter period of time, and then we forget about the things that happen, like a hurricane, four or five years later. And what 
because we tend to want to somehow go on with our lives and not remember these things. So I think the fact that we're short run oriented really actually makes it very, very difficult for individuals to prepare for disasters and take steps in advance. Let me illustrate that with one very simple example. If you're going to somehow think about making your house safer against a flood and you are actually uh, dealing with that particular issue, you will say, look at the very, very high cost of having to elevate my house or make my house uh, flood proof. And I'm only going to think about the benefits for the next two or three years. And when you have that kind of a, a, a approach to the problem, you're going to say, it's not worth it. I don't want to spend all of the, that cost. But in reality, the measure that you take will be for the length of the house. It might be 30 years. But if you're going to be myopic, you're not going to want to prepare for disasters in the way that perhaps would make some sense if you were thinking about that in in the context of a longer time horizon. And the same problem with amnesia. You People will often buy insurance, but they don't buy it until after a disaster. Uh, that's when they think about the event, and we can talk about that a little later. And then if after a few years, uh, and they haven't had any claims on their policy, they say, gee, I'm, I, I'm, I'm not going to want to continue. Uh, and they forget about the, the damage that the disaster could be doing, and they will cancel their policy. So we have this kind of behavior that actually suggests that we really have to f- figure out how to deal with these biases. The, the, the other thing is, is um, Howard talked a little bit about um, uh, focusing on myopia looking forward. Um, and the other thing is, I just want to elaborate a little bit on this idea of amnesia, uh, how people forget disasters. Uh, one of the things we really make a point of in the book is um, we really want to emphasize that what people forget is they don't, it's not like they forget disasters. Um, one of the, the, the uh, uh, most fundamental things in cognitive psychology is the way people, rem- people have things called flashbulb memories. Uh, and what that is, is that when people remember things, what they remember are very vivid events. So, for example, if you ask anybody that's sort of grown up in Florida, uh, uh, they'll remember, they'll be able to tell you what um, past hurricanes. Uh, if people will never forget 9-11 attacks. Uh, people who have ever been through an earthquake will remember the earthquake. Uh, these sorts of very vivid events are what are, are the things that really stand out at, um, in, our, in, our, in our memories and are most easily recalled. So then you kind of ask the question, well, why is it the case that, that after disasters, um, people, for example, will, will, buy, will buy insurance right away, and then two or three years later, they'll stop buying insurance, stop buying flood insurance. Well, what people are, they're remembering the flood. Okay? What, they, what they forget and what our brains don't have an ability to retain for very long periods of time is emotional memory. Uh, so what you, you remember the event, but you don't remember what it felt like to go through the event. And some of the, our research has shown that that emotion, that's, that's the thing that drives preparedness decisions. Um, it's, uh, it, it's, it's, the, it's in the wake of, uh, of a disaster, the wake of a flood, it's emotional trauma, which causes you to say, I've got to take some action right now. Uh, and, and we just don't have an ability to, to kind of keep in our brains for a very long time uh, pain and, uh, and, and distress. Uh, I, I like to, the way I like to think of it is, is that's a, it's, you know, over the over the millennia, that's an adaptation. Um, uh, if if women c- kind of always vividly remembered the pain of childbirth, uh, none of us would be here. Um, and so we've kind of adapted the 
can be really fast forgetters of pain and discomfort. Um, and unfortunately, for a, for a lot of walks of life, that's a really good trait to have. Unfortunately, when it comes to like preparing for disasters and remembering what it's like to go through a flood, that's a misadaptation. So that's sort of where the, um, where the mistake comes in. Yeah, and the only other point I'd want to add to what Bob just said is they don't remember all the pain of the disaster, but they do remember the fact that they've been paying premiums for a few years and they feel those premiums have been wasted. And so that's why they then wind up canceling their policy. So their their amnesia is on the disaster itself, but not on the money they spend. And it's very hard for people to recognize that the best return on an insurance policy is not no return at all. They should celebrate not having a disaster. But as far as they're concerned, they, they, they don't want to remember the pain, as Bob indicated, but they surely remember the premiums and say, look at what I could have done with those premiums if I hadn't bought insurance and I didn't get what I should have gotten from it. It wasn't a good investment. The third bias, optimism, is related to the ability to accurately assess risk probability. Bob, can you explain this? Yeah. Um, uh, one of the other nice adaptations that people have, you know, we're, we're pretty good at uh, these are things that normally serve us very well in life, um, uh, where uh, it's normally a really good thing, for example, to have very short memories for pain. Uh, it's also good to be happy people, um, to kind of always look at the right side of life and, uh, and to have good, positive attitudes go from day to day. And, and as a consequence, um, when we sit there and we try to talk about or think about the risk of things, our brains are naturally line, uh, inclined to or um, uh, motivated, what psychologists call motivated reasoning, where we're motivated to kind of think about the way good things can happen rather than bad things can happen. Uh, so as a consequence, we tend to be way over optimistic of um, uh, about things. Um, so for example, uh, this comes up in absolutely every step of the way in terms of disaster preparedness and disasters. That uh, that we, often it's the case that the risks that we're facing are much larger than the ones our brains are telling us to. Uh, so, for example, um, one of the ways which this comes up is uh, imagine a uh, a hurricane is approaching the shore, and uh, and you've been asked to evacuate. Uh, well, what people to do is is that they sit there and what they, they worry about is having to evacuate and the storm doesn't hit. And so then they have to kind of, uh, you know, trudge all the way out and then trudge all the way back in. And so what they'll do is say, well, you know, maybe I'm going to wait a little while. I have plenty of time. And so what they're thinking about is all the positive ways, all the positive things that can happen. The storm doesn't come. I've got plenty of time. Uh, and you're not thinking about all the bad things that can go wrong. What if it's does come. What about traffic change? What will happen if you're stuck in traffic and late? Uh, and so as a consequence, we tend to be way over optimistic. And unfortunately, that can be really hazardous. So sitting there and thinking about, for example, should I buy insurance? Well, if all you're doing is thinking about the ways in which you're not going to need insurance or than the ways that you are going to need insurance, you're going to be making big mistakes. Howard, do you have a um, uh, follow up on that? No, I think you you hit it right on the head. And let me just add add a couple of points to that. 
what happens when people are overly optimistic is two things. One is they think about all the positive things that they can be doing. Uh, they will have hurricane parties often rather than leaving. And they, they say, this is not going to happen. It won't occur. And as Bob has done in a study, they may have shutters, but they're not going to put them up uh, for whatever reason. They just feel that, the, that, that it isn't really necessarily going to happen, even though they may uh, forecast that it might. They, at the end of the day, they don't. And I think most important, when they are really optimistic, they will say, look, it's below my threshold level of concern. I'm not going to worry about this. I have a lot of other things I want to do with my time and energy. I have a lot of other decisions to make. I'm just going to take this off my agenda. And when they do that, the notion basically is they're not going to take steps to evacuate. They're not going to take steps to prepare in advance. The optimism comes about even before the disaster occurs. If they don't think this is going to happen, even though the experts may say the likelihood is going to be quite high relative to what they think, they're going to basically say, I'm not going to prepare. I won't take steps to make my house safer. I'm not going to take steps to buy insurance. And that's one of the reasons why it takes a disaster for people to actually pay attention. Then it's on their agenda. Can I, I, I can eject one other thing. I, it's, it's also this idea of the optimism bias is uh, kind of related to the more general problem of how people have a very difficult time thinking about risk in general and thinking about probabilities. Um, and, uh, and often the way, the way we construct these is a thing called the availability bias. This is a, a term that uh, psychologists have come up with. And it's the idea, it's this bias that we, we, we think about what's going to happen based on the things which are most memorable. And as long as it's the case that, that we think about pleasant thoughts, those are the things which are most, most um, available, we're going to underestimate risk. But sometimes it's the case that, um, that if we think about we can be actually in some circumstances we can become overly fearful of things that we don't need to be worried about and and by doing that in, in a perverse way we expose ourselves to more risk uh, the classic example of this was um in the wake of the 9-11 attacks with the, with the horrible plane crashes um people stopped um taking air taking uh, uh air tra- stopped uh, taking airplanes from going from place to place and auto traffic increased uh, and the consequence of that was is that probably more people died from automobile accidents in the wake of 9/11 um, than they would have given the risk, the real risk that they faced with respect to uh, to aircraft. Um, so it's it's uh, so that's a situation where uh, that w- when they were driving in their cars, they were thinking that the cars were really safe, uh, when in fact they're much more risky than um, uh, than taking a uh, than taking an airplane. The last three, inertia, simplification, and hurting, are biases that operate to help us reduce the cognitive load of decision-making and information prioritization. Howard, could you walk us through these? Yeah. Well, I I think that one of the things that people tend to do uh, with respect to the, the simplification bias is focus on one dimension of the problem. And I think the what we were just talking about is, I think, a very good example on optimism. If they think about the fact that the likelihood of this event is going to be very, very low, they're not going to focus on the consequences at all. They're going to actually think about the fact that this is not going to happen and I'm not going to worry about it. And so one of the real challenges I think one faces is if you are going to be simplifying things, then you are going to have to figure out how do you present information to people so that they actually will pay attention. And of course, 
if you if they are going to think about the consequences in Bob's example of the availability bias uh, is is a is a good one in the sense that it's after the disaster that they focus then on the on what is going to happen to the event uh, from the event rather than necessarily the likelihood and and they will pay attention I'll give you an example uh, of a, something that I had a number of years ago uh, in uh, when I was living in Austria uh, as to how they dealt with this problem in a very, very interesting way. And this was at a time when people were not wearing seatbelts, which of course most people do today. And in our country, there were, they, they were only a small percentage of people who were actually wearing them. And the, and, and the reason they weren't wearing them, they had the feeling that this was not going to happen to them. Uh, they weren't going to have an accident. They were, and, and as a result, they didn't think about the consequences. In Austria, what they did was, they all they did was a very simple reframing of the problem. They basically said, if you're not wearing a seatbelt, you cannot collect on your medical expenses if you have an accident. And when they did that, people moved away from thinking about the likelihood of the event, the fact that it's maybe a very small probability, to what would happen if they didn't have a seatbelt on. And I was living in Austria back in the the early 1980s when no one was wearing a seatbelt. A few people were wearing it in our country. Everyone wore a seatbelt in Austria, and they were wearing it simply uh, because of the fact that they were concerned that if they didn't have it on, they couldn't collect on their medical expenses. So we switched the, the terms of trade from the low probability to what would happen if you did have an accident and it made an enormous difference. Bob, did you want to say anything about that? Um, uh, yeah, sure. Um, uh, so the, the topics here were, you know, were this uh, inertia and so forth. Yeah. So one of the things that, that goes on is also that uh, that not only do people tend to simplify, like they, they basically focus on one thing to prepare for. Um, uh, so, for example, one of the disaster, one of the problems that happens in a lot of preparation, whether it's earthquakes or hurricanes, uh, is that people have um, this mindset that, that they'll, for example, they'll get a checklist of 20 different things that they need to prepare for. And what people will do is they'll say, OK, there's a bunch of things I need to do to prepare. They'll do one on the list. And then basically what the mind is telling them, you're done. Okay, because You've, uh, it's called a single action bias. Um, and uh, and it's this idea of people are always looking for ways to simplify. Uh, another way that we simplify uh, in, in, in our book, it's a, it has, has a different, slightly different flavor called inertia, um, is uh, that, that we tend to kind of like to keep doing the same thing we've been doing before. Um, and and, and one of where this really comes up to be problematic in preparedness is if you think about it, most of the time we're not engaged in the process for disasters, thank you. Um, we're uh, enjoying our lives, uh, enjoying you know dealing with work and so forth. Um, and then what happens with the problem with preparing for disasters, whether it's even if it's a short-term disaster or long-term preparedness, uh, it's never really clear what exactly you should do. Um, it's never really clear when exactly you should evacuate. Um, if someone says, you know, you ought to really be buying insurance against earthquakes. Well, I can do it today. I could do it tomorrow. I could do it the next week. And it doesn't really make any difference whether I do it tomorrow or next week. Well, probably not. Uh, and so as a consequence, given when we always have these un- uncertainties about what exactly we should be doing, when we should be doing it, um, the way our brains sort of deal with that is to say, well, why don't you just keep doing the same thing you have been doing, which is nothing. And so as a consequence, we tend to, to often grossly procrastinate things. Um, 
And, and so as a consequence of that, uh, we, we, we think of this as sort of default action is not to take any action. And that's why we tend to often underprepare. We may have very good intentions that we absolutely really put on our list to uh, buy earthquake insurance, put it on our list to buy storm shutters. The problem is, is we, we never get around to Part of what we learn in the book is that we gravitate towards information that reinforces our existing preferences. Bob, could you talk a little bit about your study on social leadership effects? Um, yeah. Um, one of the things on, on social leadership um, is, is this idea that, that ultimately we're, we're social animals. And, um, and sometimes it's the case that, that we, we make decisions independently and we have our own preferences and so forth. Um, but but in the case of social leadership, what often happens is we're uh, we're in a situation where we, where we don't know what our preferences are for sure. We'll look to the preferences of others. Um, so as a consequence, um, uh, I, it, one of the stories which I, I, I like to tell and we feature in the book is uh, often that's a pretty good thing to do. Uh, whereas if you don't know what to do, go talk to an expert, talk to somebody who does. And that usually is a really, really good thing to do. Unfortunately, what happens in situations where there are no experts in the room, uh, and and in some and you have a situation where I don't know what uh, to do, I go to look to other people, they don't want to know what to do, uh, and as a consequence, in, you could have situations where the group effect is worse than what would happen if you had individuals. Um, one of the stories we like to tell in the book is is why it is that it, it's a surprise. Um, um, effect of what happens when you have um, nightclub fires. Um, the, the standard kind of story that goes on with nightclub fires is that as soon as a fire erupts, everybody instantly goes rushing for the doors. And as a consequence, there's uh, people die because there's, there's they're trampling everybody trying to get out. Actually, it turns out that that's not really what happens. What happens is, is that nightclubs, when immediately when you start having smoke or first little signs of fire, Nobody does anything. Why don't they do anything? Well, they, they're looking around for everybody else to see whether or not there's somebody else who might know what, what's happening. And so, uh, and no one actually, and everyone feels safety in a herd. And so as a consequence, everybody stays put. And everybody's looking to somebody else to see if there might be someone who might really know what's happening. And unfortunately, as long as that's there, they're losing precious time. And so finally, when the, when the room gets filled with smoke, at that point, everybody starts door. And by that time, it's too late. So normally, so following social leaders, following um, uh, leaders and so forth, good thing. Um, and herd instincts can be a good thing. When it comes to disaster preparedness, um, it often can be a pretty bad thing and lead to tragic consequences. Yeah. And, and let me add just a, a note to what Bob says, because this is a real challenge, I think, when, you, when you're dealing with these low probability events and the preparedness aspect of that. If people are looking to their friends and neighbors, which is kind of what we, I think, are talking about in the context of social, and they don't really focus on what experts are saying, which is what we all do. We talk to our friends and neighbors. Um, we then find that if people aren't taking protection or they aren't doing something, then you're not going to do it yourself. Uh, and there's been a tendency for, uh, I think, people to ask uh, and not even discuss these issues of preparedness. So it, it has a double whammy associated with it. You don't even get into those discussions. But if you do, you generally get a notion that people are not actually dealing with that and, and taking steps. And the, and the reverse, I think, happened, and I'll just tell it very briefly, uh, 
a number of years ago, we were trying to uh, do a study. I was doing it with actually a, a psychologist, Paul Slovak, who we were working with, and we were uh, trying to understand uh, why people were not buying earthquake insurance. And we're doing a, a, a quick survey of uh, people. I had two people who were standing together, and we said, this is a, a survey for the homeowner. The homeowner was asked the question, uh, do you have earthquake insurance? And responded back, uh, well, no, I don't have it. And, the, and we asked why. And he said, I don't need it. But his colleague, a friend, immediately interrupted, even though it was a questionnaire for the homeowner, and said, hey, Bob or George, I have earthquake insurance. And that was a major surprise. The person said, you do? And was uh, and then was asked, well, where do you get it? And he said, well, I just called up my agent. And the next thing we heard was, well, I'm going to call my agent up tomorrow and find out about it. And so I think that there is this tendency, one way or the other, to look to friends and neighbors. And sometimes you take some steps because they have taken a step themselves. But most of the time in preparedness, you will not prepare because others have also not prepared. When calculating risk, there's a potential for large losses if a risk is underestimated. And you've touched on that in a couple of examples. However, there's still costs to overestimating a risk. Howard, how do you strike the right balance and ensure you invest appropriate resources in risk management? Yeah, that's that's a real challenge, Beth. In terms of, of, of this, I mean, there 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 are situations where you overestimate, and I think sometimes uh, you will take certain steps because of the fact that you're worried and scared, and that may uh, uh, or that you actually feel that this is this event is likely to happen to you. And and I think Bob's example earlier of people actually not flying after nine eleven and concerned about that is that they were really really concerned to what, what might happen. So it, it relates back to what we talked about earlier, the tendency to focus on a dimension. And when you focus on that particular dimension, in this case, the overestimation of, of a risk, uh, you may decide that you will want not want to do things like not fly, but you also may decide that you may want to actually invest in uh, protecting yourself. And that could be actually a positive if you haven't done it before. Uh, so make your house safer afterwards. So there are positive and negative features to both the overestimation, and we also talked about the underestimation. There, I think you would like to try to get people to get a, be more realistic about that. So uh, you, you have to think about it on both sides because of the nature of the biases that we're talking about. Bob, would you like to add something to that? Uh, Howard's exactly right. Uh, the, the whole thing about it is, is that everything that we do in life is associated with it. Uh, every time we step into a car, step into shower this risk. And uh, in each one of these things, uh, we have to kind of make a decision and we have to be careful and kind of commonsensical about um, what's the prioritization. And you need to be able to figure out a way, figuring out what are the things that are that are really the high risk and which are the ones that, that I really have to kind of attend to and which are the ones that I can ignore. Um, and given that I have limited resources and I and, and, and I can't take care of everything. So you always have these classic examples of um, you know, people will go, uh, you know, out of their ways to build a bomb shelter in their backyard uh, while uh, being careless when working on ladders to clean out the gutters of their house. Um, uh, and, and those are situations where people just are miscalculating what risks are. Uh, it's just hard to imagine um, us, um, you know, falling off a ladder. It's, it's hard to imagine slipping in the shower. Yet, for some reason, 
um, you know, imagining, um, uh, you know, a, a nuclear attack might be something which people, because it's more vivid, they will remember. So one of the real challenges here is trying to figure out um, uh, and trying to get people to form pretty good assessments what their real, real risks are and making sure that you put um, uh, your, your time, not only your monetary resources, but also your cognitive uh, so forth into into um, um, taking care of the risks that, that that are really most objectively most uh, real for each individual. Well, let let me give a, a graphic example of what Bob was just saying. Uh, when we go back to the Oakland fire of a number of years ago in the nineteen nineties, there were big stories around the country about one person who had invested. Two, uh, in a house that may have been worth $500,000, about $250,000 in making that house fireproof. Uh, and so it turns out that that was the only house that was standing in the Berkeley, Oakland area after the, after the fire. His house was well protected. But when you, th- when you reflect on that, that was not really a great decision on his part. I mean, for whatever reason, he just was very concerned with the, the risk or wanted to make his house totally safe. He put an enormous amount of money into it and it did stand. No other house was standing. All the infrastructure was destroyed. And of course, he couldn't really live there anymore. It was the only house in the area. Now, that doesn't suggest you shouldn't prepare for a disaster, but it also suggests that you have to be a little bit careful in terms of sort of how much you want to put in to making your house safer. And this was one example where I think if you had looked at probabilities and what the costs were and the likelihood, uh, you might not have put the amount of money that this gentleman, that this person put in, even though, of course, at the end, he was his, his house was still standing. There's some discussion of the term 100-year floodplain in the book. We see that in the news all the time, and it seems that the term lacks some context and real meaning as it relates to how we understand risk probability. Howard, could you talk a little bit about this and what the role of risk communication is in disaster preparedness? Yes, I'm happy to do so, Beth. I, I think that this is one of the real challenges that we face, in, in, and the flood example, I think, is an excellent one because there's a lot of work that is going on right now with flood insurance and thinking about how you, you, you present information. When people hear that it's a one-in-a-hundred-year flood and they are living in a floodplain, they are then told that they have to concern themselves. But if, they hear, if they're told they're not in a special flood hazard area, which is what we term the one of the houses that are in that region that could have a flood greater than 100, they will basically say, I'm not at risk at all. And so there's a tendency to have this on-off kind of decision process where you say, I'm at risk or I'm not at risk. And as a result of that, there are large numbers of people, and Houston is a good example of that, who were really totally, totally unaware that they could have a a problem. And Hurricane Harvey that occurred this past fall illustrates that because the probability of that event was relatively small. It was low, one in 500 or maybe even one in 800, but there was a feeling that I'm totally safe. And so I think what's happening now uh, with uh, the whole issue of 
presenting probabilities is to move away from the on-off decision that you're safe or not safe, which is what people like to do, to try to give people a better understanding of what the risks are across a relative a range of hazards, rather than just saying you're in the 100-year floodplain or you're not, not. And so we really have to figure out a better way to present this information. We can talk about that in a few minutes. Yeah, if I can uh, jump in there to elaborate, uh, one of the real challenges in risk communication is that um, uh, most people are not statisticians, um, and often people really have a difficult time understanding what a probability is. Uh, uh, you know, what, what's the real meaning of a 100-year return cycle for a flood? Uh, and these are often things that have very clear meaning to hydrologists. They have very clear meaning to statisticians. Uh, they often don't have very clear meaning to people, and um, so one of the debates is, is that, well, should you actually be giving this information to people if they don't really understand it and then they make wrong decisions based on it? Or maybe you should take more of a uh, sort of the, 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 uh, a parental view on the whole thing. It's just to say, um, don't present it to them at all and just tell people what to do. Um, one, of my, um, one of my favorite examples of how the, the difficulty that people often have dealing with things like percentages and probabilities. Um, a number of years ago, uh, uh, um, a colleague of mine was on a, um, a, um, a jury panel for a civil case, um, and it involved a situation where a motorcycle driver uh, was blind drunk, came, in, came out of a, um, a bar and was completely you know, intoxicated beyond belief gets on a motorcycle, goes racing at a very, very high speed up, uh, up the off-ramp of a freeway, uh, and then runs into and runs underneath a, um, a tractor trailer, which has been parked on the side of the, of the, um, of the road. Um, and so what this, and suffered fairly serious injury. Uh, and what the civil case was about was the motorcycle driver was suing the um, truck for being in a place where it stopped on the side of the road in a place where didn't stop. Uh, and so the, the, so the consequence of the jury deliberation was how much, uh, how much damage is responsible for the, the truck versus the driver. And most people would say, why is this suit happening at all? And the consensus among the jury was that it should be 50 50. Um, and in particular, the reason why they said that was that the, uh, the judge said, um, well, there should be there's some partial blame. Uh, that's associated with the truck because technically parked there. Numbers partial meant 50-50. And in a lot of the work that we do in probability, people think about what's the risk of something. They think about it as in three categories. It's either going to happen, it's not going to happen, or it's iffy. Um, And so therefore, if you go ahead and you tell people, well, there's a 22% chance of something happening, that just means nothing to people. Um, they put it, well, that must mean 50-50, or it's going to mean nothing. And so in a lot of situations, unfortunately, what people do is you tell them this 22%, they're going to think, oh, well, then it's nothing, and they completely ignore it. Or alternatively, they might think it's, it's higher than it actually So, Bob, knowing that these cognitive biases exist, how can public policymakers exploit them to improve health and safety? Um, well, okay. Well, one of the things is that we're, um, this in some sense is what the thrust of the book is all about. And, uh, and I think that, that one of the things is that we were starting to write the book, and actually I should say a little bit of a background. Uh, originally, the, the, what motivated the book was this idea of talking about why disasters occur. And as we were writing it, I think Howard and I were discussing it and we're saying, well, this is a pretty dismal book. 
it's, it's basically it's talking about how we have all these cognitive limitations and we don't think about the future and we're too optimistic. Uh, we're too forgetful and we're too, we simplify too much and all of these bad things are going to happen. Uh, but what we really wanted to do is say, actually, this is not what about. I mean, we're going to be pointing out that people have these limitations and these bad things that can happen. But the real lesson of the book is to say, you know, take these same limitations and flip them on their head. And, and it turns out, how do we get people to prepare? Well, it's through these exact same biases. Because in the same way that these same biases cause mispair, we can kind of exploit them or use, use them as leverage to get people to prepare more. Um, so, for example, uh, one of the things I talked about uh, or we talked about a little bit earlier was this idea that people often uh, fall back to defaults. And the default usually not to prepare for something. Um, it's uh, uh, if I'm, if, you know, given that I don't have insurance and I'm not sure whether or not I should get insurance, uh, well, I'm not going to get it because it's sort of that default action. Well, what you could do in a situation, why don't we kind of flip, our, you know, flip the safety is default. Not, um, uh, not risk. So for example, and now we don't want to be in the situation of forcing people to do things, but basically by cognitively um, um, taking that same bias and flipping it, we can get people to kind of make the right default decision while still giving them the option not to have to make the decision. So for example, uh, one of the things that you might want to do for, um, for flood insurance, for example, would be to say um, uh, that part of your um, uh, part of your annual homeowner's insurance policy will include flood insurance as a, as a standard default part of it. But if you don't want it on every given year, you can sign a form that says, I don't want flood insurance. Um, let me just, uh, I think that Bob's raising a really important point here in terms of uh, how we saw uh, the risk management area, accepting these biases and then trying to deal with it. And just a little comment on on the, on the flood, uh, flood policy, because this is exactly the kind of issue I think that needs to be at least addressed today, because there are so many people who may even think that flood insurance is included in their homeowner's policy, which they're required to buy as a condition for a mortgage. And so if it turns out that you were doing the following the suggestion that Bob just made of sort of saying, look, we will add flood insurance onto your policy and uh, and then you can decide that if you don't want it, you can opt out of it or cancel it. Uh, many people would say, oh, uh, that I'm really happy that you put flood into the policy because frankly, uh, I didn't, I thought that actually my homeowners covered that and it's good that you told me and you can tell me something about the disaster. And then if you at the same time talk about the challenges that hurricanes have on wind and water damage, where it turns out that if you only have a homeowner's policy, you will not collect on any of the water damage, you may actually get people to pay attention and actually decide that they want that coverage where otherwise they may not have had it. Yeah, Howard, let me uh, jump in with uh, another example of how we can use these biases to people uh, to, to help people make better decisions. Uh, one of the ones that we had talked about a little bit earlier, and I think you were discussing, was this idea of simplification bias, that people often kind of focus on doing only one thing to prepare for, uh, for a disaster when, in fact, they ought to be doing many things. Um, well, the way traditionally we've, we've kind of dealt with that is just to, cut, is to give people long laundry lists of different things to do. Um, well, uh, when in fact we know as preparedness experts that, that there is a natural prioritization of these things. Like if you're only going to do one thing, do this. Um, and so instead of it's the case of just giving people a long laundry list of things to do 
repair, or this is the different things you can do to make the house safer. Accept the fact that people are probably going to go one thing at a time, and they're going to do one thing, and they're going to feel safe. And so kind of what this is here, what we need to do is leverage that knowledge to, to, to develop comparedness measures, which rather than giving people 20 things to do, give them one thing to do. And then once you get people to do that one thing, then all of a sudden you have a new set of preparedness to say, okay, now that you've done this, here's the next thing to do. Uh, and that's going to be a lot more uh, uh, more effective, and it's, it's working with people's brains, not working against them. So the book also has a behavioral risk audit that helps to uncover the biases and how to work around them. Um, Howard, could you talk about what the audit is and how to use it? Be happy to. Uh, the the behavior risk audit is very much in the spirit of what Bob was indicating a few minutes ago about why we decided that we wanted to write this book because uh, our Wharton Risk Center has always focused on how you are going to do a better job of risk management and policies, and I think that the tendency has been to try to over to basically say, can we correct these biases? And what the behavioral risk audit is doing is quite the opposite. It's saying we all have these biases. We all tend to be myopic and we tend to forget and amnesia and inertia and simplification and hurting the ones that you've just been talking with us about, uh, Beth. And so our feeling was if we could somehow think about ways we could deal with these problems in a way that people would then pay attention by trying to communicate the information in a different way and also to provide incentives, economic incentives, to actually get people to behave in a way that they otherwise might not. And let, let me illustrate that with one example that we were just talking about in the context of the flood problem and that people don't tend to necessarily protect themselves against flooding because, and we mentioned earlier, they have this very high upfront cost. And I think we would say, for, for one thing, it isn't just one of the biases. There are a series. All of these biases are going to be important. And I'll illustrate this with, uh, with two of them, the myopia bias and the optimism bias. The myopia bias is in, an example of where it turns out that people say there's a very high upfront cost of this measure, and I'm not going to get benefits back that will make it worthwhile for me to do this because I'll only focus on the next two or three years. Now, if we somehow try to reframe this by saying, we'll give you a long-term loan to help you make your house safer so you won't have a large amount to pay each year, and at the same time, you should know you've been, you, you're required to have insurance, and many people are required to have it on their mortgage, your premium is going to go down and it'll go down by more than the cost of the loan. Now, right there, you've transferred the myopia bias into a positive because people say, I'm going to save more next year on my insurance premium reduction than I actually would in having to pay for the loan. So right there, the economics takes over and you're going to say, maybe I really want to invest in that measure. It actually is financially attractive next year. And to couple that, you could then deal with the optimism bias where people say, well, you know, the, this one in a hundred year flood, it's not going to happen. It's below my threshold level of concern. But if you provide information to people by telling them, if you're living in this house for the next 25 years, the likelihood of having at least one flood or one hurricane would be greater than one in five. And if they 
see one in five, they say, wow, that's a high enough probability. I better pay attention. So those two things coupled together may actually get people to perhaps uh, uh, take their heads out of the sand and actually say, maybe we want to do something now rather than uh, assuming this disaster will not happen to me. Bob? Uh, yeah, just in general, I, I think that the, the risk audit is sort of, it's something where I think to get a real appreciation for it, you got to buy the book. And uh, and what it is, is it's a, it's a general template for getting people to sit down and, uh, and it's not just really meant for policymakers or businesses, it's also really meant for individuals um, uh, to sit down and think for, uh, you could, for each household could sit down and say, well, what are the different risks that our household faces? Like one might be, if you're in Florida, it might be hurricane risk. Uh, if you're near the Mississippi, it could be uh, spring flood risk. Uh, if it's out in California, it could be earthquake risk. Uh, and to sit down and sort of say, what it does is it forces you to walk through in a che- informal checklist form. Um, here are the different kinds of biases we talked about in the book. Um, here, So now we want you to, after having seen these biases, Think through how this might be manifested in self in terms of mistakes that you might make. And then the third step is to say, given that I make these mistakes, what are the concrete actions that I can take to kind of overcome them? Uh, and so it's in some sense, it's a, uh, it, it's a crutch, it's a toolkit, it's, a, it's a, a, a guiding force to basically help you make better decisions. The only thing I would add to that, to what Bob is saying, and I, we, we definitely uh, wrote this book for uh, individuals to take action, but it also will give policymakers and people in uh, organizations, uh, both in the government and the private sector, some clues on, ta- on terms of what they can do to deal with these issues. And I think the, the best example of that that we could use is the Federal Emergency Management Agency has recognized that maybe they shouldn't present information on the one and a hundred year flood, but maybe tell them that it is, uh, think about this over a longer time period. And they have tried to do that in part of their risk communication. So I think it's a combination of people, as Bob was saying, but also to give some clues and guidelines for where uh, federal, state, local, and agencies, as well as as private sector groups like insurance companies could do a better job of communicating the risk so people would pay attention, and also giving economic incentives in terms of premium discounts in the the case of insurance uh, if you take protective measures now. Bob and Howard, we've taken up a lot of your time. Before we let you go, would you mind telling us what you are working on now? Uh, sure. Um, I continue to be really active in research areas related to decision making in general and risk. And one of the things we're doing now is kind of really excited uh, excited about is trying to see to what degree um, we, can, we can use social media data uh, out in real time to get a better feel for how people are thinking about disasters just before they occur. Um, so, for example, a lot of our book is talking about disasters and what you can do in long-term preparation. Uh, but in some sense, it would be, often be really cool and really helpful if, if um, I'll say, if a hurricane's approaching, uh, if we can kind of get a better sense as to whether or not people are over or under preparing well in, uh, in advance of the event rather than after the try to figure out why it happened. Uh, and so uh, right now there's there's uh, um, vast amounts of data that come in terms of how people are talking about disasters on different sorts of media platforms, Twitter and, um, and Facebook. And we're certainly involved right now in making a big investment in uh, natural language processing and text analysis as a way of trying to continuously monitor this, these conversations and try to get a sense as to, I, I guess you can call it kind of a, 
um, preparedness meter in terms of are people preparing adequately or not. So this is for us that, um, that my work is going on and, and we're also engaged in more broadly in the center. Uh, Howard? I think that my research, as I think I've indicated, is really trying to somehow figure out how you can get people to prepare. So this book is certainly a, a, a model of what I've been interested in and will continue to be interested in. I think the big innovation that I'm excited about in terms of research is to try to figure out how you can implement these policies today. And we have, um, thanks to the arrival of Carolyn Kuski at our Wharton Risk Center and Catherine Gregg, uh, who is from, coming from from New York City, where she was involved in climate change activities there. Uh, we have now a new initiative in the center that I think uh, could be hopefully um, move in the direction that I think the book is trying to push, and that is a policy incubator, where we're going to try to work with policymakers who are concerned about these issues, uh, and at the same time, try to use the principles of the behavioral risk audit, as I'd indicated earlier, that they could hopefully utilize to figure out how we can actually implement policies along the lines of what Bob was suggesting earlier about how you can actually get people to opt out of a policy. That's an example on flood or earthquake insurance, how you can develop economic incentives to get people to take actual uh, uh, decisions now, and in particular, how we can actually uh, communicate the information in ways that people would pay attention. And so my research there is really focused primarily on that aspect and doing experiments where we, we do controlled experiments on trying to get an understanding on how people are actually going to behave, uh, both on web-based experiments and field experiments, so that we can see ways that these principles of the behavior risk audit can actually uh, hopefully work. And so that's where I'm going now. And it's a very exciting time for personally myself and also for the risk center. And um, Bob and I sort of see the ostrich paradox as a way of actually forming uh, a, a model for how we could go forward in trying to, in terms of trying to do that. Those sound like great projects. Thank you for being on the show today. Thank you very much. Thank you. Good to be with you, Beth. The Ostrich Paradox by Robert Meyer and Howard Kuhnruther is available now from Wharton Digital Press. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, full work limited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.